everyone. Welcome to Player vs. Plot, the podcast where we take video game stories seriously. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sterling. And today we have a very exciting lightning round episode to close out our season. Yeah, we got a three for one deal on platformers, starting with Super Mario Brothers 1. Then we go on a few years to Donkey Kong Country. Then we jump a couple decades to Celeste. Yes. So pretty exciting. Three and one. And if that's not exciting enough, you may notice we sound a lot nicer than usual. And it's not just because we had some tea. It's because we have brand new mics, a whole new recording setup. So really excited to break this in, hopefully figure out how to use that. Nowhere to go but up with our sound quality, I think. So get ready, because season two will be even better. Yeah, Sterling's mentioned that this is our last episode of season one. So we're pretty excited about how season one has gone. Pretty good launch. Gotten to do a lot of really exciting video games for season one. We're going to take probably a month off and then be back with season two, another 10 episodes. Any idea, guys, on some episodes that we're going to try to get ready for season two? I think that we're going to do a little bit of Metal Gear Solid, some Death Stranding, some Street Fighter 2. Are we covering the whole games? I was under the impression we were doing all of Death Stranding. A whole season? Yes. You probably, I mean, Chris, you've started that. That could be, is that a whole season? I thought we were just... Like, you know, transitioning to a podcast about <laughs> Death Stranding. Because it's like, I put in a lot of time for Death Stranding. Yeah, actually, uh, next season will be called Player versus Death Stranding. Who will win? Not the player. Never, never. No. <laughs> well, we will be doing a bunch of different games. Those are definitely three of the ones we're going to get started on, plus some other surprises for you guys. If you are curious about what else might be coming or you want to make sure that you're in the loop, to be all fresh on when our next season starts. Obviously, the easiest thing to do is subscribe. And you can always follow us on social media. So we'll do a little early plug, because why not? Two plugs are better than one, just like three games are better than one for this episode. So as always, you can find us on all the social medias at Player versus Plot. Stay in touch with us so you can join us when we start season two. And send those questions in. Oh my gosh, yes. And any other suggestions for games you want us to cover in the future? We definitely have a list going. And even as we start chipping away for our next season, we're always excited to add new ones, whether we've heard of them or not. Anything you really want someone to kind of dive into. But today, as we've kind of mentioned, we've each picked a platformer that we want to kind of dissect. Maybe one that a whole episode would be too long, but 20 minutes or so on each of them feels about right. Any thoughts in general on platformers? Yeah. What's a platformer? I'm glad you asked, Sterling. <laughs> I would propose a platformer is a game where the primary difficulty is jumping and where you sometimes have challenges where jumping is literally the only challenge in your way. So that's why maybe Castlevania, I would argue, not a platformer, because most of the challenges in uh, Castlevania are not actually from jumping. It's from from combat? Combat or a combination of how combat affects your ability to jump somewhere. Yeah, like those stupid Medusa heads. That's what makes it a Metroidvania. A Medusa head? That makes it a Metroidvania? Yeah. Sterling's like, there's only been one Metroidvania. I don't know why everyone keeps calling it a genre. Yeah, I don't know what this Metroid part is, but... (laughs) (laughs) He's like playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I didn't know this was a Metroidvania. (laughs) Cutting off a Medusa's head. So I have to say, I'm not a big platformer fan. There are definitely platformers I enjoy, but not a lot of the traditional side-scrolling platformers, which is we're focusing today on 
three different side-scrolling platformers. I also think an interesting thing we'll see as we go through these is how the mechanics of platforming progress to be more closely tied with the storytelling. I mean, when you think of an early platformer, we think of Donkey Kong. Is that right, Chris? Yeah, I would say, I mean, the first one that I can think of, I'm not really sure what the first platformer was. I thought for a long time that it was Pitfall. Pitfall came after Donkey Kong. It oh, interesting. Out. I'm waiting for somebody in the comments to say, uh, excuse me, uh, Pong somehow qualifies <laughs> as a platformer. Well, you- there definitely may be something deeper and more obscure. Yeah. But I think it's easy to agree that Donkey Kong is one of the earliest popular platformers, one that I definitely so. transcends into the public awareness. Yeah, and, and movement. I mean, the entire point of that game is it's not even really shooting anything or like hitting anything or... Maybe there's a little bit of collection, but most of it is maneuvering around the barrels, going up, choosing when to go up or down a ladder. I would say those are what I think of as platforming uh, challenges. And there, do you think the platforming really has a lot to do with storytelling or building anything? Or is it just, this is a thing we can do now, so let's create this mechanic? Well, do, are you asking, was the platforming challenge there to tell a story? Or Yeah. How, like, do you think... Like I, I would guess from what little I know that they kind of developed the mechanic and then built the premise around that. They said, okay, jumping up and platforming seems cool. What if someone has to climb a building? What would be at the top of a building that you want to get to? I don't know, like a giant gorilla guy with a princess. I've seen that movie. Let's do it. I mean, I think a lot of games back then were designed that way where they, they think like, what do I want the player to feel mechanically? And then... What makes sense to express that with the two colors that we have available for this sprite? Definitely. I think a lot of the old platformers were really telling a story by emulating an existing story that was already around. So like Donkey Kong, King Kong, I think Pitfall kind of feels a little bit like Indiana Jones in a way. So you kind of get that feel that you're taking on the role of a character that you're familiar with but it's not that character it's you and you get to go on this adventure so you can fill it in however you want so it's like enough degrees of separation but also maintaining some familiarity so you can step into that role and feel you like you don't need a lot of information to know why you're climbing that building to save that that lady and I, and i think that this is a common technique for video games in general like if you look at the original Fallout, right, the, the box says a post-nuclear adventure. What's left unsaid is all the stuff that you're filling in in your head when you hear post-nuclear. You're thinking of Mad Max and a boy and his dog and all these things that the game does, in fact, play off of. Like genre like, buy-in. Exactly. Or you like already have, Yeah. You already have a certain suspension of disbelief and a certain set of expectations, and the game doesn't feel like it has to spend a lot of time setting those up for you. Yeah, it can play off of these assumptions it knows that you're going to make going in, which is what makes Mario kind of interesting. Yeah, do we want to dive into it? So in the middle of researching for this, I... And to be clear, you are covering... Super Mario Brothers 1 from 1986? I think it's 86. One thing that I was very surprised by is Super Mario Brothers 1 is not the first side-scrolling platformer. That goes to Pac-Land, which was a attempt to turn Pac-Man into like a more of a cartoon character. It was a game where you played as Pac-Man and he walked from left to right across a screen, went to different environments. 
Uh, each environment was very different from the previous one. Pretty much everything you associate with Mario did appear in some way like in that Pac-Man game. That sounds cool. Yeah. I, re- I was very impressed when I, I saw really that. like Pac-Man. It's like my mom's video game, and she doesn't you know, play video games. But boy, she plays Pac-Man. Yeah. In some way, it definitely transcended some, oh, some yeah. barriers. Well, when I was a kid, I played uh, Pac-Man 2, The New Adventures, where you're Pac-Man and he's a father. And, like, you what? have to go and do, like, daily tasks for him. Like, go get milk for his baby. That's and like, weird. He's, like, a lemming, like, walking left and right. And you have to guide him as, like, his, his fairy guardian or something. And I was like, where the hell did this come from? <laughs> Turns out that version of Pac-Man did exist before that. That was interesting. Was in but obviously did not reach the same level of popularity no, okay. as Mario. No. So then we get to, I think it's... I think it's 85. Uh, we get to Super Mario Brothers 1, right? Why is Super Mario Brothers 1 so impressive, even if it's not the first to do it? It's a side-scroller. So a lot of other home video gaming equipment at the time did not have the ability to scroll the screen to the right. If you look at stuff like Donkey Kong or even Pitfall... Um, they were all single screen. A, exactly. It was a stationary screen and they had to use other ways to communicate that you were moving. Like in Donkey Kong, it would actually display the height in meters of the level that you were at so that you knew how far you were. Oh, had come. interesting. I'm just going to quickly put uh, put this out there. In Japan, it was released in 1985. In North America, it was released in fourth quarter of 1985. Just to yeah. double so check our research. So that's where we are. <laughs> Yeah, 1985. We're we're at a point where the 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 very fact that your screen could slowly move and uncover new information smoothly was like new technology, so new and so so advanced for a home system that a company that would later become Rockstar tried to what's the word I'm looking for? Not audition, but they tried to get jobs at Nintendo by showing Nintendo they had replicated Super Mario Brothers 3's smooth scrolling and in fact ported the entire game to the home computer when no other home computer game was scrolling so smoothly. Oh, interesting. That was like their job There's like value to that technology. Exactly. Cool. Hmm. So what does Super Mario Brothers 1 use to do uh, do with that technique? Right? What, like is, what yeah. story does it tell? Yeah. I'm not going to lie to you guys, but I... <sighs> I'm not, again, not a huge side-scrolling platformer fan, so probably not as familiar with this Mario game as what do you think a lot of people. the game is about? I don't know. You got to save Peach. So Your princess is in another castle. I know that what I interpreted about the game was actually quite different from what they put in the game manual, but my interpretation was you're some sort of plumber carpenter man going on a journey to save your princess or girlfriend. Who knows? And is it the mustache that made him a carpenter? I I just kind of was like, oh, he's breaking blocks. Like I feel like that's kind of what carpenters (laughs) do. Carpenter's special ability. I think a carpenter does the opposite. Well, they they make blocks. They put things together. Break blocks to make blocks, Lindsay. Don't you know that old saying? Maybe he was a demo man. Like who knows? I don't know. Construction worker, I would buy. Yeah. But, you know, people said he was a plumber and there was that amazing cartoon from my childhood. Yeah that I want to sing the song for, and no, I probably will you're later. Going, you're not going to. Bonus content. No, no, people will leave. <laughs> They'll ask for a refund. Yes. <laughs> so the, You guys are getting paid. <laughs> so wait, so you were getting to it. What What did you think was the plot to Super Mario Brothers? Uh, that 
your girlfriend's been kidnapped and you got a journey across an entire kingdom to rescue her from the antagonists. I think that's fair. Uh, castle. And the antagonist was like this big turtle. Naturally. But, you so know, I think that, that, that... The natural enemy of well, the plumber. I think that, <laughs> you know, maybe it is. They sure um, get stuck in pipes? I don't know, but I think it might have been easier to make a turtle than a dragon. Who knows? Back at the time. Yeah, I don't know. So the... The instruction manual plot to Super Mario Brothers 1 is, first of all, there's no explanation of where Mario came from, which is funny because every adaptation of the game attempted to do that, right? Like oh, We really? know of him as a plumber from America. Well, and he is the same Mario as in Donkey Kong. Uh, that's what they imply. Even though in the later games, the not the Donkey game. Kong is not the same Donkey Kong. Right, and we'll get we'll touch on that when we touch on Donkey Kong Country later. Okay, okay. So yeah, I Super mean, Mario not that that's really super relevant, that. but he does. When is when does Donkey Kong come out? Nineteen eighty-one. Okay, so Donkey Kong exists. Mario is a familiar yes. icon. In I, fact, so is Luigi. So after Donkey Kong one to three and Junior, they ha- or. Donkey Kong 1 Jr. 3, they had Mario Brothers, which was a competitive arcade game where Mario and his brother Luigi tried to clean the pipes of some Mm -hmm. sewage system where crabs and turtles were coming out. And the whole point was to defeat your brother and show that you were the superior plumber, I guess. Okay. So then from there you get Super Mario Brothers, which is this quote unquote athletic game. That's what a platformer is called in Japan, an athletic game. Is it still? Which I think is, yeah, which is I it, think is so cool. Is that why it's called the athletic theme? Yes, that's why it's called that. Because the whole, the, the whole point of Super Mario Brothers was to make the player feel like they could do all of these athletic things that they, could, they can't do in real life, like jump that's several so interesting, feet and that's just slide and stuff. Every video game now. Every yeah. video game, I'm like, boy, I wish I could do that. I see Nathan Drake like do a crazy jump and grab on and climb a wall, and I'm like, maybe I should try this rock climbing thing. And then I go rock mm-hmm. climbing, and then I regret it. That's why I got into rock climbing, was just in case I got thrust into some <laughs> fantastical situation where I needed to be able to do a pull-up. Yeah, I and Sterling is constantly prepared to be a video game protagonist. Yes. I mean, I've seen him go rock climbing. I've seen him state his goals. Yeah, we watch from the floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're on our, on our backs. Yes. <laughs> um, so Shigeru Miyamoto, the, the designer of Super Mario Brothers and a bunch of other games, he said that when he was making Donkey Kong, he was so serious about it. He felt like he had to reflect what real jumping was supposed to feel like. So Mario didn't jump that high. And if he fell too far, he would die and things like that. And he said with Super Mario Brothers 1 and on, he wanted to make it feel more fun than like realistic, make it feel a little bit sillier, which contributes to the whole feeling of Mario being very agile and like he can do anything. I'm just going to say, I love that. I love that philosophy. I love when things are sillier or more cartoonish. I guess real life is already enough reality for me i don't want to have like fall damage right like i want (laughs) to in real life i already like get hit by barrels by giant apes right and i just want monkeys are kidnapping princesses all the time too real what if we made it a turtle in real life i always trip over the barrel but in video games i can be better than the barrel you might say that you can be more athletic yes more (laughs) athletic than the barrel i'd prefer to say i can be more platform So, That's very in American Super Mario Brothers you. 1, according to the instruction manual, you uh, are 
for whatever reason, you are Mario and you are trying to rescue Princess Toadstool in America, Peach in Japan, from the, the quote, Turtle Tribe, which is led by the great demon King Koopa. Or in America, the just King Koopa, actually, is still at that point. And, um, who is Bowser? Who is Bowser? Okay, not to, like, not to sound completely out of no, touch. Yes, but. yes, King Koopa, Bowser, same person. Okay, cool. Same um, turtle. Yes. So, in Super Mario Bros. 1, the turtle tribe has powerful magic, which they use to turn the citizens of the Mushroom Kingdom into bricks and coins and terrain. Okay, I do remember I plants. heard this at one point. Yeah. Like, all the bricks you are breaking... I mean, I'm not going to jump They're the gun people. here, but we'll, should They're we circle people. back to this? Or Bricks are we ready? Are like you're just murdering people as Mario. Yes. Or emancipating them? I have no idea. That's, That's you, a weird detail. Would you rather well, be alive as a brick or murdered by Mario? I don't know. Murdered by Mario. I'm just, next question. I'm just saying, <laughs> if they... If they were actually emancipated, Chris, they would pull some sort of like sonic stunt. That's a good point. Where the rabbits would hop away. And it is now, what, three, almost three and a half decades after the game came out. And there are no toads coming out of those blocks still. That's a good point. So. And they never, they didn't change it for the American version. Like, you know, in localization, some weird details get sorted out, smoothed over. Didn't happen for that one. Well, maybe. It was just at the time, nobody was really paying that close attention to it. Nobody knew it was going to take off and be as big a hit. Thank God I have a side-scrolling platformer, finally. Who cares what the details are? Or the translator read it and he was like, finally, these people get me. (laughs) Or, you know, everybody was on mushrooms in in the translating room. They're like, this game, perfect. Makes loads of sense. Don't need to change a thing. Like, it go- obviously, it goes I do to print. Feel different after I have mushrooms. It goes to print. They're like, okay, well. So, so following that instruction manual story, you know, you uh, go from world to world, trying to defeat the Turtle Tribe soldiers until you get all the way. to Oh my gosh, Princess are they called Toadstool. the Turtle Tribe in the manual? Yes, that's so cute. Yes. And they have powerful magic, which has turned, actually. There's only one point in the game that I could really say you could see their magic at work, which is at the end of every world, you fight a fake Bowser who it turns out is an illusion and is actually one of the regular enemies in disguise. Is the castle an illusion as well? I'm uh, not what? sure about that. Wait, is this... I, I, I sometimes mix up my Mario Brothers. This might be Super Mario Land that I'm thinking of, but isn't it you get to the room and it's like, ah, boom, disguise is off. It's actually a toad, not the princess. Um, That's in the remake. So they remade Super Mario Brothers 1 to 3 in Super Mario All-Stars. And in the All-Stars version, when you get to the end, you just see a bag shaking. And then the toads pop out of the bag and they say, thanks for rescuing us. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're toads. Sorry. But that's not in this one. No, it's just a toad at the end of every castle. And they say, thanks, Mario. But the princess is actually in a different castle. So... Getting to the text of the game. So the turtle tribe has magic. They have magic. I think I think it's just I really magic. Really want a t-shirt that says turtle tribe and just has like a Koopa kid on it. Yeah. I want to make that a thing. That should exist. Right? So in the in the text of the game, you are Mario. Your job is to move from left to the right. And what is the inciting incident? Like what is the opening thing that tells you your task? The manual. 
Uh, this oh, is the from game a, just starts yeah. and the, you just go? Back in the day, manuals were the things that tried to explain why you should be having fun with the game. So, mm-hmm. like, sometimes I think there was like a Godzilla Game Boy game. And honestly, you couldn't tell what was going on. And you're supposed to read the manual and it'll be like, oh, yeah, you hit A and you're smashing things. And that's cool because it's doing this and whatever reason. And the manuals were necessary yeah. because the game's couldn't actually explain it themselves the technology wasn't there or they weren't putting the the technology was there but not for like both the kind of gameplay they had and the yeah and and to be clear at the time that mario one came out the technology started to exist where you could express a lot through the game which like most people haven't read the manual of mario but they get what's going on in the game and they actually understand most of the story but then you had, before that, you had games like Adventure, like one of the first, I guess, adventure action-adventure games. And in that game, you were an arrow, or you were a dot, and your sword was an arrow, and there were these, like, Zs or whatever that were dragons, and you would have no idea what any of that meant unless you looked in the manual. So, so again, to circle back, there's nothing at the beginning of the game that tells you you got to go get princess toadstool no not not even a little bit it just opens and you're on the screen and you just know you have to go to the right well you can go left but the screen won't scroll that way so you're told by the game going right is the way to go no yeah in mario one the screen only scrolls to the right so you have to go right you there's no way you cannot know what to do no i didn't because this is this is the nes right yeah so let, let me blow your mind a little bit more then. Wouldn't okay. it not scroll back left? So if you went too far right, you'd miss it? Uh, I mean, there are things that like you could miss by n- overshooting it, but maybe you're thinking of Mario 2 where you could actually scroll past the exit to the stage. Yeah, that was it. Okay, I'm mixing up Mario 2 in this. Okay, yeah, so... It, sorry. Oh, yeah. I, so, like, I was promised that my mind would be blown. So they were so concerned about making sure that the player understood aspects of the game without having a manual. Because remember, Mario 1 was also an arcade game. So you may not have anything to guide you to what you were supposed to be doing oh. or how it worked. And then you may not even meet, read the marquee on the arcade cabinet, right? So as an example of the kind of thought that they put into that first level, which is one of the last levels made for the game, one of the first things that you see is a Goomba coming at you. Uh, which will kill you if you just walk forward and don't jump. And you will see question blocks. If you hit one of the question blocks, a mushroom comes out, which is a power-up, makes you bigger. But And you just assume, you're like, this is obviously a good thing. No, you're not supposed to assume that. They were, in fact, extremely worried that people would assume it was a bad thing. Because you might say, oh, I won't be able to fit places. No, they no. would just assume if I touch the mushroom, what if I die? What yeah. if that mushroom? Oh, is okay. You're okay. watching way too much Mario Maker streamers. I do. So, despite not loving platformers, I do watch Mario Maker <laughs> streamers daily. Oh, you're so you're thinking like the trick mushrooms yes. that like make you unable to progress. Yes. No, no. The, literally, because the the Goomba looks like a mushroom too, right? So, how do you know that that other mushroom oh, yeah. is a good thing? Okay, so what do they do? So they put a pipe to the right of that area. So if you hit the block and the mushroom comes out, and you try to run from the mushroom, the mushroom will hit the pipe and then come, come chasing you. after you. So you will likely touch the mushroom just by accident. It's you would have to actively go out of your way to avoid that mushroom. So if you're a new player. Uh, and you're bad at the game, the game will actually make it more likely for you to touch that mushroom accidentally. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So it's a, it, there is a lot of that thought going into the game, right? And you kind of see that uh, in a lot of places in Mario 1. So we know that the plot is 
getting from point A to point B. That's a story. Solid right? plot. The, the narrative of any given level of Mario 1 is I need to get to the right because Princess Peach is somewhere off to the right. Right. And in between me and Princess Peach, I think this is the purest form of narrative you can get, right? There is an obstacle between us. Yeah, when you break I it down, this is also the plot of Lord of the Rings. Exactly, right? You have stakes. It's the thing to the right. And then you have the danger. You have the thing that's stopping you from getting to the stakes. All of that is your antagonist, right? Yeah. Including the environment. So Mario 1 really, really focuses on using this idea of moving right and scrolling the screen to portray travel, is what I would argue. Because a lot of the images that it shows you are of Mario going very high, going very low. You go up into the clouds and you're on these giant mushrooms. It's very Alice in Wonderlandy. Like they use exotic feeling locales to make you feel like you're in a different world on an adventure, right? Like it's very trippy. What all, like, does this have the underwater level? Is that in this yeah. one? <laughs> yes. Me and Storley were just talking about this. There is, so we all remember that this game had underwater levels, I right? don't, but now, now I do. Or that it's a thing informed. in Mario. Uh, yes, I know it's a Mario thing. Uh, the uh, first underwater level in Mario 1 is in World 7. It's oh, There's eight worlds yeah. in the game. It's almost at the end of the game. The game's just like, surprise. This, who knows where else you could go? Which is a classic trope now. I mean, yeah. it's a thing in... Even in Mario. Two major kind of exploration-based games that I've played recently where you play the game for a while and you're retracing your steps throughout the game and that's part of the mechanics. And then at some point it's like, yeah, you can go underwater now. All those watery things you've been walking by, you can just go underwater. Are you talking about Sekiro and Jedi Fallen Order? Yeah, but I was trying not to spoil it. <laughs> oh, you go underwater so, in those games. Well, I think it's really fun moments, especially in Sekiro, which we'll get to. I will say that did surprise me in a similar way in yes, Sekiro when it doesn't, you go underwater. It, it was less of a surprise in Jedi Fallen Order, partially because I recently played Sekiro, and also because that's less clean mechanically, so... Well, when I was video near, games, you go in water all the time. Well, but when I was near water, sometimes I would be locking onto things very deep. And oh, I was like, oh, yeah. I guess I'm going under there later. Anyway, what I'm saying is that I can see how the way they used it in this Mario game to say, you don't even know where adventure could take you, is still used in more dramatic and technical ways in very popular games today and very effectively used, too, I think, to convey something similar about exploration. Yeah, I agree. And it, and it really, putting it so far at the end of the game, I think is almost a kind of like, like you're styling on the player. Like you're showing them like, <laughs> you've come so far, you don't even know what's in store for you next. That's you know? funny. And I love that about Mario 1. And another thing that I really like is Mario 1 is so concerned about continuity to make, to like convince you that you are on this journey. So another thing that, there are less of than you might remember in Mario 1. Underground levels. There's only like two in like the whole yeah. game. So like one, two, and... And four, two, I believe. Oh, okay. Uh, and funny enough, if you were to warp your way through the whole game, you would still have to go through both of those underground levels. Oh. So it kind of makes it seem like there's more of them than there are. What do you think... So this Mario game has like the secret warp moments. Mm -hmm. What do you think that exists to do? Like... Does that serve some sort of narrative purpose? Is it rewarding you for being familiar with the journey? I think so. I mean, one one reason why warps were so common back then is because um, a lot of times developers really did want you to be able to play the game from wherever you died. 
but if you turn the system off, there was usually it was very expensive to package a battery save with the game. And in the case of Mario 1, that technology literally didn't exist yet. So they would put in warp points in order to make it so that an experienced player can quickly get back to like the part of the game they want to experience again. And in fact, in the NES version of Mario, they straight up just have a continue cheat. Like you can just push start in A, like like in Ghosts and Goblins, you just go back to the world you were at before. I did not know that. Yeah. So it's partially that, but also in the story, I think it does show a kind of like Mario's own mastery over the terrain, right? Like if you, the way you always get to these warp points is you're underground and you're trying to get high ground that will lead you to a place you're not supposed to get to. So if you make proper use of his athleticism, you get to skip parts of the game, right? And the reason I brought up the underground level is that I really love this, is that whenever Mario goes underground or goes to a castle or goes underwater, the game always telegraphs this to you. So if you're going into a castle in, one, in World 1 Level 4, World 1 Level 3 ends with you getting to a giant castle. Okay. And then once you beat the castle, World 2 Level 1 starts with you coming out of the castle. So it definitely weaves this narrative together. Yes, and like, and consider that like, if if he just started the next level in a castle, I feel like we would all be fine with that, especially today. Maybe yeah. even at that time. I mean, we were fine with it in Donkey Kong. Yeah. But they went out of their way to show Mario entering a warp pipe that then takes him underground at the beginning of the level, and I think that's because they really wanted to impress on you that this is a seamless journey. That like you are. Moving, you're seeing every step in Mario's journey from World 1, Level 1, all the way to World 8, Level 4. And do you feel like your experience with the platforming makes you feel responsible for that journey? Like, the same way if you were to climb a mountain in real life, you feel like, oh man, I hiked, I worked so hard, and I'm here. It's pairing that feeling of nailing the platforming and his athleticism to say you've earned yeah. this yeah, journey. For sure. and I, I think it's the game also being kind of self-conscious about the language it's using. Because if it's using the scrolling to show you going from left to right in one part, why would it suddenly break that when you're going to a different type of location altogether, right? And so mm-hmm. you were saying something? Uh, yeah, and I think that it does give you that sense of satisfaction, the same kind of satisfaction that you'd get from like climbing a mountain. And I think it also uses the same kind of skill. It's not as physical, but it does <laughs> involve a lot of mental acuity. Well, to perseverance. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, if you've ever watched anybody who's very familiar with the game, it certainly is a feat that is impressive. Yeah, the more you the more you play the game, the more you see how the enemies are lined up to make it easier for you to like run through it and just show mastery over this like yeah. the terrain. So what is the ultimate ending? You just you find Princess Toadstool? Well, you have a lot of false endings like every four levels you get to a castle, you fight Bowser. But not really Bowser. You exactly magic it's Bowser. one of the magically magic disguised Koopa enemies. Bowser. And then they, you always see a toad that says, sorry, the princess is actually in another castle. Which, like, what was that toad doing before that moment? Uh, under being captured. Being captured Do by Do you Bowser. see him be freed? Yeah. The toads are the citizens of the Mushroom Kingdom. I know, I understand, but do you see his ass getting out of jail anywhere, or is he just hanging out? No, he's out? actually just standing there. That, okay, <laughs> let's think game. about that. Why could he not have shouted at Mario, like, oh, Mario, wrong castle... Before your fight with Magic Bowser. Well, Well, so I thought the same thing. He's probably 
been like captured and is imprisoned back there but also i think how does he get out well i think that there's like a back door right there so oh my god also you broke the bridge to get to him yeah Yeah. (laughs) so there's definitely a back door and Wait, he Mario came in the back door. No, no, well, no, no. The back door just leads to more Koopas. Yeah, the back door leads down the back. You think Remember, you come out the back door in the next level. You exactly. think he's just been stuck there trying to escape out there? So, Lindsay, I, I had the same thought, right? Like, I thought, in my for some reason in my head, when I went back to replay Mario 1 for this podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, the story, like, Mario goes to all the different castles to see which one is, is Toadstool in. And then finally, the, the eighth one he checks is the one that she's in. No, that is not true. Mario is dashing in a straight line, the right. shortest route he can take. And it just so happens that there are eight castle checkpoints so on the way So do you think there. Mario never expected to find her in those castles? And Toad's just like, man, I sure wish she was in this castle. That would be easier, right, Mario? I think that the Mushroom Kingdom is just a straight line. No, I've got, I've got, <laughs> a, I've got a new headcanon. And it's the Mushroom Kingdom is a series of concentric circles. And you are walking down the middle through all of the castles. And the castles are actually gatehouses. And you have to go through them so you can get further into the circle. Either way, my question is, if Mario knows he's getting from point A to point B, and Toadstool is in point B, and he knows there are castles on the way to the point B castle... Does he expect the princess to be in those I don't castles think he in does between? Then. I think I then, think like, he why knows. is Toad like, sorry, she's in another well, castle? Well, maybe they took all of them at the same time, and they've just been leaving them at different castles because it'd be too costly to feed all of the Toads at one castle. I think, yeah, and also a cost is actually a good point because I'm going to bring up something related to that. But also, I think the Toads are just they ha- they have a very low opinion of themselves because they think, why would Mario come here to free me? Oh, he thinks I'm oh. Princess Toadstool. I like that. That's a good explanation. Maybe. Yeah, okay. Toads just have self-esteem issues. So, yeah. Other thoughts on it then? Uh, before we move on, yeah, because you know I think we should probably get to the next thing. Put but the lightning in the lightning round. The just I just want to shout out a couple of the things that are so cool about how this game portrays travel and like passage of time. This game has day and night cycles in it. So worlds oh. one what? and two are during the day. World three, nighttime all of a sudden. Worlds four and five, day again. World six, nighttime again. That's every so three worlds I like is it. nighttime. So every level is eight hours of time. Except for the night. Levels. No, I would interpret <laughs> no, that. I would interpret that as that's the part of the night that you're awake for. Yes, or okay, and you don't yes. play for the that's part that you're point. asleep. So wow. each each world is four hours, I guess. That, that, that's still only twelve hours. Yeah, right. So it's daytime. I mean, I, I thought the average person's up for about like sixteen hours, but now I'm being pedantic, so I'll stop. <laughs> so, but either way, either way it's cool. Sh- I did not think that there was any rhythm to that. And another thing that was a weird piece of rhythm I saw, for some reason, the the castles mimic each other in periods of three also. So castles two and five are similar, and then castles four and seven are also similar. Two is an almost exact copy of castle five. They are like model homes, except castle two doesn't have all of the fixtures in yet. Because I think they couldn't afford it. I think two is still <laughs> under construction because it's the furthest away from the the castle. I okay, so you think that Bowser is starting in his seat of power? Yeah, maybe like Bowser's just like a developer, and that's just you know like Sudden Valley, and nobody wants to go to Sudden <laughs> Valley. Oh my god! Because when, when I say it's missing fixtures, like the layout is exactly the same, the fire stick blocks are all the same, 
but some of the fire stick blocks are conspicuously missing. Like the block is there, but That's the fire so stick. crazy. The game doesn't do that anywhere else. So like, you think it's really intentional to communicate something. It's the only level that is an exact copy of another level. I don't know why. I don't think it's a coincidence that it's further away from Bowser. Bowser's a real estate mogul. He's just yeah. trying to get his cookie cutter homes out there. And cookie they do, cutter castles. They do make a point of Bowser being more fortified when you get closer to him. When you get closer to him, you start seeing the guns come out, like the, the bullet bills. And when you get to the second to final stage in the game, there's ramparts like everywhere. Like you pass through all these like fortified walls. They don't exist anywhere else in that game. That's true. Only that level has all of these big walls to protect the castle. That's awesome. Yeah. There's well, like that a makes real a lot of sense. There. This is I think, oh. almost compelling enough to make me want to go back and try to play yeah. Mario again. At least Mario or 3. Watch some more Mario Maker. I mean, well, if you at least play Mario 3, you will see all of these ideas come to fruition. Like, Mario 3 yeah. has, like, a whole world where there's a land part and a sky part, and one of the levels has no ending. It just is a tower that goes into the clouds, and then you appear in a different world. Like, Interesting. There's so much narrative. I, I definitely, through. I've played a bit of a ton of different Marios, mm-hmm. but I've never played from beginning to end, aside from like galaxy and so like more more recent mm-hmm. ones did you like galaxy i loved galaxy yes. and that also has a pretty cool I liked, story i like i yeah oh yeah i liked galaxy i think galaxy could be my favorite odyssey was fine galaxy. i wasn't as into odyssey as a lot of people were and super mario sunshine's really cool i liked it i i think we are two of the few people who still are into sunshine People are, who's over Sunshine? I don't know. Everyone's trying to say now that Sunshine wasn't popular. Everyone liked Sunshine. Sunshine from was what so I popular. Remember. It was, I was the kid with the GameCube and I was like, yeah, guess what? I've got Super Mario Sunshine. Well, on that note, <laughs> I'd <laughs> like to. Uh, yeah, I guess. No, I, I, I have positive feelings about Super Mario Sunshine as well. It was a fun game. But I think we do need to move on to our next section. Oh, you're saying he has more positive feelings about his game. Of Donkey Kong Country. Yes. We're Donkey moving Kong on. Country, yes. Donkey Kong Country, yes. Well, the well, sequel to. Donkey Kong. No. <laughs> well, what I'm going to say, though, is while I would love to talk about Donkey Kong Country 2, which is my favorite game and the game, I think, which has the best soundtrack of all time. It does not. But it's damn good soundtrack, though. Yeah, it's amazing. Go listen to it if you've never listened to it. Uh, but we got to start with Donkey Kong Country, which is a phenomenal game. And it's okay. Yeah, here's another one I didn't out. play a lot. <laughs> this was, I had it, I didn't own it, but I would borrow my friend's copy on mm. the Game Boy Advance. They released a version of it. Is yeah, that... there's a port. Okay. Yep. That's the one I am familiar with. So then I would just try to play as much of it as possible in the periods of time that I was borrowing it for. And I mean, like, it was a big deal. Like, no one can deny Donkey Kong Country was a big deal when it came out. Yes. I thought it was okay. What platform was it originally released on? Super Nintendo. Okay. To be clear, Donkey Kong Country 2... Is, is a fucking masterpiece. Yeah, it's uh, it's a flawless game, Donkey Kong Country 2. Well, tell me about Donkey Kong Country 1, so maybe one day we can get to Donkey Kong Country 2. Yeah, maybe. All right. Well, Donkey Kong Country 2 starts off with, well, here's, here's the rundown, what some of the Nintendo's player guide also says as well, uh, which apparently was the Nintendo and Rare consulted with one another and published information in these manuals, which were not... In the, in the player's of, guide, that was not in the manual yeah. or the game. So the, oh, I, yes. wait. How would you get this player's guide? Well, they were sold at the store. So, you know, when you'd go and buy a manual, 
you could get that, which was an official licensed product. So, so was could... there information in the manual that came with the game yes. about the story? Yes. And then there, additional and then information. Additional. Right. The guy who wrote the manual also worked on the player's guide. Well, he just sat down and he's like, I have so much lore yeah. for this game. I well, got to get it out of I my wa- head. I want to say, I, replaying Donkey Kong Country, I was like, the guy who wrote the manual clearly had more energy than they were giving him work to do. <laughs> yes. Because he put his whole heart I, and soul into that manual. I know what it's like to feel that way. All that, right. That, so the manual is also where we're getting a lot of this information. I'm sorry, the player's guide and the manual and the video game. So this is three parts of officially licensed Nintendo and Rare Donkey Kong Country information coming together to synthesize into this description of the game. So Donkey Kong on a dark and stormy night, Ooh. right? That's how you start any good story is Donkey Kong. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> It's a dark and stormy night, and Donkey Kong's little nephew, Diddy Kong, is undergoing hero training, and his goal and his duty tonight is to stand guard outside of Donkey Kong's banana horde. Very heroic. This is very meta. (laughs) Like, the game is right from the start. It's very explicit, like, yeah, we know we're video game heroes, and we're training to be better video game heroes. No, you're exactly right. And so, Diddy Kong is supposed to come and get Donkey Kong at midnight to relieve him of his guard duty of the banana horde. But Do you lo- want to like paint me a word picture of this banana horde? All right. So you have an amazing wooden treehouse-like structure perched on top of a cliff. And in the face of the cliff is a cave that leads to caverns filled to the brim with bananas. Bananas of all types and sizes. Bananas the sizes of trees. Bananas you like you would not believe. No many, animal could ever hope to eat this many bananas. How many bananas lifetime. would you say there are? Five bajillion. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's an inordinate amount of bananas that it's like are rows upon rows upon rows of no, 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 Super no, no, no. Nintendo you, cannot store the number that would be required <laughs> to describe the number of bananas. They had to like make the entire area like a different palette just so they could handle all these yeah, bananas. That's a good point because they actually have to color the bananas in the background differently because the depth of field is so deep in the horde and like the bananas stretch so far back that they have to start making some of them red so that you could tell there's more bananas in the background. And just endless, endless bananas. So anyways, the story goes... Diddy Kong never made it off his shift to wake up Donkey Kong that night because the Kremlings got him. <laughs> they absconded and kidnapped with Diddy Kong, threw him into a barrel, and sealed the barrel and left him and in the forest. Clear, what are the Kremlings? Kremlings are reptilian... Anthropomorphic. Yeah, reptilian anthropomorphic people. reptilian people. I thought they were all like crocodiles. Lizard men. Yeah. Well, they're Aren't like- they all... Isn't it isn't King Croc the guy? King K Rule. Oh, I've given him a whole new name. Yeah. Um so King K Rule has apparently <laughs> It's like Killer Croc like <laughs> decided to order all of the people on the island to or all of the reptiles and a few other personages baddies as they're called the in the guide animals to the ugly animals really is yeah yeah saying. like the wasps and the gators the manky kongs which are a <laughs> portmanteau of skanky and mangy and mangy uh, oh that's canon yeah Gross. that's actually what it says in the player's <laughs> manual say, not the portmanteau part but yes i'm really on board wasps being inherently evil 
I've never been stung by one, but I've been stung by bees, and I hear it's worse when it's a wasp. It's unclear if they're... Well, they call them bees, which makes it even... I don't like them either. I think it makes Donkey Kong look even worse, because the bees are so against Donkey Kong, they're willing to give up their (laughs) lives. It's actually uh, a proletariat revolution. They're like, we've pollinated these bananas, we've grown them, we've tended to them, and you just hoard the wealth for our own. Well, it is weird that that's not the message, considering they use the word crim... So, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Why Why is Donkey Kong have to, besides finding Diddy Kong, which happens in like the first 10 seconds, what is this adventure about? So the adventure is Donkey Kong needs to get his bananas back. And he's going to go to the source to make sure that nobody steals his bananas again. And the source is King K. Rool? Supposedly. So the leader of, of, the, the, Kremlings. of the Kremlings, the head lizard dude of the Soviet... who's like a pirate. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pirates. And he's so big that you don't even like the the manual describes him as like the biggest, fattest, oafiest bad guy you've ever seen. That's cute. But yeah, so you're going through a journey through Donkey Kong Island to try and save your bananas and get them back because the Kremlings were so bad at taking them all away that they left a trail of bananas that you have to follow. <laughs> that, that is like a common refrain in Donkey Kong Country to say, to like show the Kremlings being kind of comedically inept, uh, imply that like all of this stuff that they're so proud of doing, like creating the factories and all this stuff, is they're not actually doing a good job of it. Right, and that's actually something that I wanted to touch on a little bit, was uh, as you travel throughout the world, you come to different locations on Donkey Kong Island, so- like canyons and uh, mine shafts, mountaintops, and like an evil factory land. So we're at the beginning, though. Right. So Donkey Kong has big banana horde. Well, Diddy Kong has to protect it in order to be like a cool hero. Diddy disappears. Donkey Kong is like, whoa, Diddy's gone, and so are my bananas. Oh, oh also, well, in the actual official story, before Donkey Kong goes to find Diddy Kong... Cranky Kong. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Crank, well, before he goes to see him, Cranky Kong comes out and says, what are you doing? You're such a loser. You goofed. I don't know why you're trying to get away with all of these fancy, high-tech video game stuff. Oh, yeah. It should all Video games should be about pattern recognition and not going on some grand adventure. And they should be single screen. Actually, Cranky Kong keeps <laughs> saying games should be a single screen. Yeah, and Cranky Kong, Cranky Kong. Yeah, Cranky Kong is actually the Donkey Kong from... The original 1981 uh, Donkey Kong. And he's... So, not Donkey Kong from this game. Right. But Cranky Kong, which I've known, but I will never get used to. So, Mm -hmm. anyways, quick quick aside, Donkey Kong, the name actually came from the creator's decision to try and express that uh, Donkey Kong was a stubborn and kind of stupid monkey. And so he said, oh, yeah. People like donkeys are stupid, and that's like what they say in America, right? I think, right? Yeah, nobody. Okay, nobody's gonna double check this. And oh, that's a thing. Yeah, but like he's like you, donkey. Yeah. Well, I mean, donkeys are definitely a, a symbol of stubborn headedness and being kind of asinine. No, I know, but I mean, like, like I get it. <laughs> but like, I don't say it for like dumb as often as I do for stubborn. Okay. Um, it is decidedly not a heroic name. It is, yes, Mm-mm. it's not a heroic name, and that's why I think it's pretty cool. But anyways, so what he wanted to name him was just Dumb Kong. Yeah, like basically. Dumb Monkey is essentially what he wanted to call Got him, it. and he pitched Donkey Kong, 
And when he pitched it, the entire room burst into laughter at him. And they're like, you know what? That's a fine response. (laughs) (laughs) So then, I I mean, we'll circle back to this at the end of the story, but I'm interested to see if there's any progression for him as a character dealing with this personality trait of being dumb or stubborn. So pin in that and weave weave me a story. All right. So Donkey Kong, this big burly gorilla, is now going off to go find his cousin, Diddy Kong. First and foremost, um, as the guide pitches it, and Diddy is a little monkey wearing the o- a the only monkey. Yeah, the only in monkey the in the family. game. Uh, Trix, Trixie and Dixie, or Dixie in and, this game. Yeah, yeah, in this game. Okay, I'm sorry. I don't mean to get also, ahead of myself. Also, Dixie's not their family. Right, Dixie's <laughs> Diddy's <laughs> girlfriend. <laughs> we'll get there, uh, maybe. And anyways, Diddy's little monkey wearing a red T-shirt and a red hat. And Donkey Kong, according to the guide, needs to go out and save his little buddy. Again, as Chris already said, that happens like in the first six seconds of this game. So you're like, <laughs> I all right. I can't wait to start this journey to save him, man. Oh, he's here. So I guess we're going to like go and get bananas now is really the theme of it. And going to fight those jerks. Well, th- th- there's a trail of bananas that leads you to each of the hordes of stolen bananas right. being guarded by one of the animal like, So the lieutenants. game opens and the pitch and the premise and even the guide are all like, you're going to save Diddy Kong. And then it's immediately obvious that that is not what this game is about. It's Well, they, they say you need to save Diddy Kong and it's implied that it's going to be a larger part, but you know, you're, you're constantly saving each other. Diddy and Donkey Kong are constantly yeah. saving each other. So when one of them gets injured, they get captured, essentially. And they're thrown and sealed away into a barrel. And so Which I do this love. is this is actually something cool because Diddy Kong is actually no longer in hero training. He's actually being a hero and he's going yeah. out into the world to save Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong likewise is saving him. And so it's this tag team adventure where both of them are equally reliant on one another. It's a prequel, the God of War. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, it's just it, what you're doing there is. With all the information that you're given at the beginning, you kind of see this wonderful growing of Diddy. I know I'm being very generous. Like, <laughs> like this growth of Diddy Kong is is just very present throughout the entire first Donkey Kong Country, which is or is not required to play the second Donkey Kong Country, which is where Diddy actually goes off on his own adventure and becomes a true hero. So it sounds like this is really a game about Diddy Kong. I, I would argue Diddy Kong is the real protagonist of Donkey Kong Country 1. Interesting. In part because a lot of things in Donkey Kong Country 1 point to Donkey Kong being kind of an asshole. Mm-hmm. Like the, when in the, in the manual, before he goes to find Diddy, he goes to check on his banana word. <laughs> yeah. And then it's gone. <laughs> He's like, Diddy's gone. Better go look at my bananas. Yeah. They're gone. Now it's serious. Now He's it's like, personal. Gone, but more importantly, my <laughs> bananas are gone. I better go save Diddy so he can get these bananas back. This <laughs> that, guy goofed. Which, by the way. That is totally the only reason he saves him. He's like, yeah. this guy better help me get my bananas back. Quick peek to the future. In the manual for the second game, when Donkey Kong gets kidnapped by the Kremlings and Diddy Kong is like, I'm going to go get Donkey Kong. Who's with me? And Nobody. No Nobody in the entire oh, Kong family no. wants to help him except his girlfriend. I don't, I, you know, I mean, I know Dixie goes with him, but I don't know if, does she actually want to go or is this like... She, she goes to prove to Diddy Kong that she's as much of a hero as he is. So it, she doesn't even go She. I don't think she gives Donkey a shit Kong. about Donkey Kong. 
She's like, look, you think you're a hero? Well, boy, I can do this too. And also, Diddy Kong kind of implies that like the real reason he's doing it is to prove to everyone that he can because everyone's like, you can't do it. You're just a runt. In and the sequel in, in two? Right. Yeah. And actually him being just a runt, in quotes, is one of the mechanics of this game because he doesn't have the same capabilities as Donkey Kong. While they generally do, Diddy Kong uh, isn't as strong, so he can't kill a lot of, or, yeah, I guess kill, uh, a lot of the Kremlings. So the bigger, heavier ones, you jump on their head, and as Donkey Kong, that would get rid of them. But as Diddy Kong, they just laugh at him. And so the entire time, like Diddy's constantly reminded that maybe you're not cut out to be a hero. And Mm -hmm. he goes through this entire journey and, you know, he's quite, I I saw it as, you know, self-doubt, questioning himself. But really, when you work together and you you believe in yourself and you actually push yourself beyond the limits that you think are possible, you're able to go and get all your bananas back. I think that's really the moral of the story. So how... Let's talk about how it ends then, and then maybe we can backtrack and talk about what evidence we have to support that Donkey Kong's an asshole and what we think the message of this game is. All right, so uh, King K. Rule is not actually on the island. He doesn't have any of the bananas. Uh, Maybe he has one banana, one really big banana. He's just out on his pirate ship kind of directing all of the Kremlings to go out and redistribute. Yeah, redistribute the wealth, wreak havoc, who knows, whatever you want to say. And... K. Rule is just a pirate. He's crazy. He's kind of not portrayed as sane. Like as a king, really? Yeah. Like, yeah, like a pirate is a king. Like, that's, eh, you know, I mean, it's not One Piece, but... um, It's also kind of a... Like, you might expect to see, like, some factory director or something, but no, he has nothing to do with the factory. He has no, like, thematic link to what you've seen or, on the island up or to that skills point. or so mechanical skills he's just a brute there are factories being put up across the islands and they're being put up by the kremlin they're they're actually in one area so um this is something i actually got wrong until i went back to it for this i thought that the kremlings were industrializing the island which i want to point out also the island is shaped like donkey kong's head which <laughs> i think implies this island has been like shaped shaped and like exploited by do the people think, who already live there. Do you there. think it's Donkey Kong's head or do you think it's the original like Cranky Kong's That's head? That's a good question. I have no idea. I don't <laughs> think it's Cranky Kong because it's not on one screen. <laughs> it has a little cowlick. It shows up on multiple screens. Yeah, and Cranky Kong doesn't have a cowlick. We yeah. could have added that after the fact. That's true. Could be like the uh, Kohage in Naruto where they add them. Except it's no just one that the 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 Hokage. <laughs> oh, Hokage, oh, that's what oh, it is. Yeah, and so they they it's like the Mount Rushmore thing in in yeah. Naruto. Oh, yeah, and so instead <laughs> gotcha, of like gotcha. making the mountain like a series of you know leaders, yes. it's just one leader. Well, what if Donkey Kong like got all the animals to work on, and he's like, first we'll start with my head, then we'll add the rest on the other sides. <laughs> <laughs> what they got There'll done. be one head for every animal. And then they finish that one. He goes, I know you guys are probably tired. <laughs> Let's just stop. <laughs> Let's take a break for a while. <laughs> for like yeah. a decade. You can have a banana if you want, <laughs> but not too many. So he does find King K. Rule. He does find King K. Rule and he beats him up and goes back to his home and it's all happy. He's like, yep, yep, I got my bananas back. And that's what really matters. Yeah. Whereas Diddy is like, oh, I mean, maybe I... I, I grew. 
I'm <laughs> I'm so, better. I'm stronger. Donkey Kong does not make any progress with his personal no character growth. It's actually funny because for how much effort went into this game aesthetically and like how much they wanted to give a voice to Cranky Kong and how much the instruction manual says, there's a surprisingly small amount of, I would say... Actual story, Building, like creating some kind of arc for the characters to go through in the way that I would even say Mario 1 kind of does that. They just kind of wanted to create characters, not really yeah. character Like they're growth. creating mascots. Yes, like I, I honestly think the people who made this game... They wanted to create the bedrock for a new classic. Because, Which they did. Yeah. And if you look at the games they made before Donkey Kong, they were much more complex than Donkey Kong. Like, I think Battletoads is a way... There's a lot more going on in that game Gosh, I haven't than even Donkey Kong thought Country. about Battletoads in too long. Yeah. But, like, I think Donkey Kong Country is in, intended to be very accessible, very on the nose about what it what it wants to show you, what it wants to say. Okay. And so, so I think it really isn't about a character growing or changing. It's just like, here's a mascot. This guy's kind of an asshole. This kid's yeah. this. I, I assume then that as a kid playing it, you were more meant to identify with Diddy Kong than with Donkey Kong, which is possibly why you rescue him so quickly I mean, as I well. Did. Oh, I thought you were he was always my favorite too. Diddy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I like Diddy a lot. Um, I like Donkey Kong just because I didn't have to worry about being laughed at by enemies oh, by the giant blue. <laughs> um yeah yeah and the the ones that with clunks i think their names were i don't remember but the ones with the Krusha. army crusha and then there was the ones with the army helmets and the big bellies as well oh yeah uh, i can't remember that one i don't know so then what do we think there's definitely a weird message in here that the game doesn't unpack yeah. or Ooh, pay off the on? elephant in the room so i think the message is that nicholas and alexandra shouldn't have died <laughs> That is a Bolshevik revolution <laughs> joke for you, everyone. And I, weirdly enough, not the first time I've talked about the Bolshevik revolution today. Oh, I thought you were going to say on this podcast. No, oh, no. If only. I mean, we can talk about it more. But yeah, like there's, they named them the Kremlings. Yeah. So, which sounds obvious, like Kremlin. There is an obvious parallel here between the main character having a huge horror. I would say comically, intentionally blatantly comically large yes, amount of wealth because the game could be just as motivating if he lost one pile of bananas yes but they choose to show you like you're in the cave of wonders but but it's all bananas and there's which several i think abu would like better yeah and it's just like magic it goes on and on forever and it's all for donkey kong and then you follow this trail to each of them and the kremlings are working together with all of the other animals in the jungle except for five of them or four of them. Which are like the golden trophy animals, like the rhino yes. and the ostrich. They, you have a small and number of animal friends who help you. Swordfish. Yeah. Blinky the, the frog. And everybody else is kind of like, we're, we're sick of Winky this. Winky the frog. Winky, yeah. I'm sorry. Blinky, I think, is mm. not a thing. <laughs> so, so I want to ask. He's that frog's though, cousin. Yeah, I mean, right. We just haven't gotten to the sequel yet. I, I will say, I the, when I first started playing the game again, I was like, this is a weirdly, like, th this game weirdly makes me be in favor of the Kremlings at the beginning. But as you get further in, the game actually tells you, like, all the mines and stuff, the industrialization, is not the Kremlings. It was actually already there. Like, Donkey Kong Island has already been mined out by Donkey Kong. 
Donald <laughs> already took all of the wealth from the island. And not only took the wealth, he left the environment in a terrible Shambles. state. Yes. So I think there's a nuance. I don't know if I really want to say nuance about Donkey Kong Country 1. <laughs> but uh, by the end, I think I, I think the game is saying that Donkey Kong Country, this like monarch who has everything, the other animals want to be him. They're jealous, rightfully. And the Kremlings come in and they say, look, we can promise you like factories and make all this stuff for all of you. And at one point you go to the source of where their factories are, like the only place where uh, all of the factories are actually standing. And it's just a lake of poison. So and I, is that the Kremlin? I have fault? the Kremlings. Okay. So, yes. okay the I, Kremlings have no idea how to run a factory. They're just polluting everything. an entire lake. So is, I'm not sure if my headcanon then would work into this framework, but I always liked the idea that Donkey Kong was just some sort of like robber baron and polluted the lake, which is where all of the reptiles were living. And they're like, screw this guy. I'm going to go take his bananas now because I don't have oh, a home. Oh, so that was like, that's just where they live? Yeah. That's, that's but hilarious. I think that a lot of the other, when I did a little bit more reading in some of the player guides and the manuals, they were implying that these kremlings came from who knows where they came from somewhere else on their ship right with the and i think it's supposed to be a surprise like you it's supposed to be a surprise that you see oh they're not like they super technological people they just like stole stuff and brought it to the island they're They're an invasive species (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be really direct then there's an almost like pseudo socialist vibe i would say communist yes communist vibe where they're taking the bananas from the one who has it all, who's kind of an asshole and out of touch with the rest of the island, apparently, and redistributing it throughout and saying, we can work together to industrialize and make this happen. But then the other text within it is that that is not working and is not a promise they can deliver on. It's really weird because because they play up the fact that Donkey Kong is an asshole. Yeah, there's no heroes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't come away from that thinking like, oh, this game is trying to tell me that communism is supported by these buffoonish Kremlings. And of course it's not going to work out because also the game makes me feel like, well, maybe someone does need to take that Donkey Kong down a peg. Like, Yeah, and, so. and that's why I end up feeling like Diddy Kong is the real protagonist because he's just know, a child bananas. trying to navigate what's right and wrong exactly. in this political world. And then he's like, you go see these Kremlings, you're like, maybe they have a good idea. Oh, that's where they live? And then you <laughs> see, like, where did this all come from? Oh, it's just a pirate. <laughs> he doesn't know what's going on. No clue. So Diddy comes back. He's like, oh, oh boy. Maybe monarchy, communism, everything like I think I know. Maybe it sucks. And then he establishes a democratic republic. Well, in the... No, he goes back to working for Donkey Kong, it turns out, when the revolution fails. He, he goes back to working for Donkey Kong. Viva la revolution! Ooh. Well, the revolution then abducts Donkey Kong, yeah. and he has to go and save him. That's Donkey Kong After too. King K. Rule. Yeah. country too. That's right. You know, gets a degree and learns how to make robots. No, that's the third that's one. That's the third one. Actually, he goes wow, from being a, a pirate to still being a pirate in two. That's right. I mixed up King K. Rulenstein. 
yeah. with uh, so the second one. My bad. I guys. think the really surprising thing is how very political and yeah. yet unpolitical yes. Donkey Kong Country <laughs> One is. They use a lot of potent imagery, and I don't think the game is that concerned about what you take from it. Yeah, it's very on the nose, and yet doing nothing with that. Is right. it, isn't there something out there, uh, Death of the Artist, um, where once the artist like put something out in the world yeah, it's no yeah. longer his mm-hmm. anymore mm-hmm. so he you know rare put this game out they're like yeah it's a fun game about monkeys in the jungle <laughs> and, here and we now are. here, here we, we are, are. <laughs> like 20 some years communism. later <laughs> and it's a statement on why communism won't work and oh gosh who knows but you know that that's clearly what they were intending I obviously that. that's exactly and and like i i'm still kind of on the kremlin side is this funny oh, thing at yeah. the end of the day i'm i'm Pretty in the middle, you know, like much like Diddy Kong, very confused and in the middle. You know whose side I'm on is the animals because clearly all the ugly animals were not included in Donkey Kong's kingdom. They're the hyenas. Well, of they this would kingdom. not have looked very good on I, Donkey Kong's Mount Rushmore. So. I'm, that's true. I'm also going to say real fast because we didn't touch on it, but we've got to get on to the next ones, the next uh, game soon. Is uh, maybe the Kremlings are actually imperialists and they're trying to take over Donkey Kong Island. And this is actually a statement on why imperialism is bad and why people's own cultures should be allowed to thrive and grow in their own way. I like Uh, it. So do we want to bring any authorial intent into it? Because that is true. Like they are uh, an invasive species who come to the island and they're trying to get, they're trying to use well, this is where I'm inserting my own opinion. They're using the existing unrest against the Donkey Kong clan because mm-hmm. they're enlisting people who re- who were, according to the manual, rejected from the Kong family, like the Mankey Kongs. <laughs> the Mangy Skanky Kongs. The Mangy Skanky Kongs. Um, That's so problematic <laughs> on so many levels. And they apparently stole the bananas to starve out the Kong family. And That's why they stole them, so that eventually they can leave a power vacuum that they then fill. Gosh. Wow. Well, that was... Uh, this is the most political game I've ever played, apparently, in hindsight. Yeah, I'm playing Disco Elysium right now, and I'm like, I don't know, this and Donkey Kong both... <laughs> neck and neck. Making some statements. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, Lindsay, I know that you wanted to talk about Celeste. I am. I am so excited. Because I wanted to talk about Celeste. It's, well, who do, you st- turns out you still get to. We're not kicking oh, you out for this God. segment. All right, Sterling and I are turning it off our mics now. <laughs> So, as I've made pretty clear, not a huge platformer fan, but a platformer that really clicked for me was Celeste, which is very recent. It just came out in 2018, kind of an indie game developed by two, I think two people came together, made it. I know they made it in a like jam session the first time where you just kind of hang out and you're like, oh, we're going to make a game. Oh, you mean a game jam. Game jam, yeah. A not, jam not like, they're just like on their Whoa, guitar. if I put this function in? Whoa. Whoa, no. object. So they're doing a game jam session and they made what the even more old looking pixelated version of Celeste that you can play in the game. Yeah, so the original the original Celeste was just like a very short, simple game. You climbed a mountain, kind of like a, the Donkey Kong game we were talking about, where it's single screen, you get to the top of the screen, and then it moves to another screen and tells you how high you are, mm-hmm. like in a little sign. So it, it's very reminiscent of uh, what we were talking about at the very beginning. Yeah. So uh, interestingly, this one obviously has the most explicit plot, and it obviously started off with the mechanics. 
So it's it's one of those where like this is really fun mechanics, but I also think that this game merges the mechanics the most both explicitly and symbolically to tell a really good story. More I would say more more so than Donkey Kong. Country, well, yes. For sure. Like yes. I, I really feel like this game says here are the mechanics. Why would you play the, this game yes. with these mechanics? How can the story reflect why you would do this? Yes. I, I, so to get into the story, you play as a girl named Madeline. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Madeline, not Madeline, despite having loved that little yellow hat girl like growing Madeline. up. Madeline. You can say Madeline. I'll say Madeline. And Where you land in this. Madeline. I'm going to call her Maddie. No, okay. I'm just kidding. Also, I, I, prefer, I also read it as Madeline when I was playing the okay. game. So... Uh, she's adorable. She's got this long red hair and she shows up at the foot of this snowy mountain with the intent to climb it. And she runs into an old lady there and the old lady has like the pseudo Dark Souls laugh where every once in a while she's just like, ha, 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 because she's crazy or something. And the old lady's like, bitch, this is a hard mountain to climb, but good luck though. And Celeste is like, it's fine. I got this. And you journey with her through this arguably very complex platforming. I mean, all platforming is difficult for me. No, you're right. But I think this is much more like fast and reactive and you have to do complicated it's like, it's combos. It's like segregated into screens where you need to plan your route through the yes. individual Yes, I think screen. I like this platforming because it is platforming, but it feels like puzzle platforming, which I really enjoy. And, and the game is all about climbing this mountain, Celeste. And... I really enjoyed that kind of puzzle aspect of it because it did remind me of bouldering and rock climbing in a way. Because mm-hmm. when you're climbing and doing that, you have to plan out your move and they ahead actually you have to plan out ahead of time and sometimes you have like holds and stuff and they, they sometimes call them puzzles almost when you, you get up there and you're trying to figure out like, what is this move that I need to do to get up there? Yeah. And it really shone through in this game for me that this, yeah. while it's not as physically taxing as actual rock climbing i did find my (laughs) hands cramping a lot while playing this to try and get some of these moves done yeah so it definitely uses i mean on a a very surface level the platforming is saying okay you're using this to climb a mountain and just like real climbing there are some puzzle aspects and some planning that you need to do so when we follow her on this journey she runs into some other characters there's theo who is this kind of like very cliche hipster dude. He's just on this mountain because he wants to take pictures. Isn't that cool? And also his grandpa came and climbed this mountain a while ago. And Madeline's like, oh, that is super cool. The other important character she runs into is herself, her reflection, which I, I saw called Battleline, which I really liked. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's much better than the, tech, the name she's given in the game of part of me. Yes. But I mean... In the game, it wants you to take that aspect seriously. So the game does introduce her as, it's part of you, part of me, Madeline. And this is a version of her that is done in slightly different colors. At one point, Theo describes her as, like, adorable goth Madeline, which I think is pretty on the nose. She's got these red eyes. And it becomes clear as you play the game that this is an aspect of her own emotions that she's been dealing with. I definitely, in my first playthrough, interpreted it as depression. She very clearly has anxiety. Later in the game, she has a panic attack. At one point, she calls her mom, and her mom says, are you having another anxiety attack right now? So Badalyn, her like evil self, embodies all of these negative thoughts. And you learn through Madeline's discussions with Theo that 
she came to this mountain to escape. She's like, I, I am stuck. I'm not feeling happy. I need some sort of change or some sort of thing I can accomplish to show myself that I can do this and to shake these feelings off. And then she comes to this mountain and instead finds a physical embodiment of all of these things she's trying yeah. to escape. So the platforming becomes on and off about trying to escape this version of herself. It gets a little trippy. There's definitely segments that are ent- like entirely a dream. You do this like magical section and then at the end the phone rings and she picks up and I think it's implied that it's an ex-boyfriend of some sort who's like, why would I even talk to you? I haven't mm-hmm. talked to you for months. And she says, oh, this is a dream. And then when she wakes up, it's the phone call from her mother who asks, oh, are you having an anxiety attack again? And at that point, you almost read the magic and her confrontation with her inner self as all a dream. But as you progress to the next section, it becomes explicit. So she runs into the hotel manager. Mr. Oshiro. Yes. So there's a hotel there randomly, and he's kind of a ghost-looking guy, and he has this hotel that's clearly out of business. Yeah, and just a quick point on this. The very first level that you're going through, uh, after the tutorial, I should say, is this old abandoned city that you're climbing through. And so you can see that the entire town that was surrounding the foothills of this mountain has been abandoned. So this hotel was likely a part of it, like kind of an escape on the mountain, maybe skis, who knows. Yeah, but- and weirdly, they there's a whole line about how the town is probably there is there because some corporation built it and tried to make a town exist. So I don't know if there's some failure of that or I mean and it's obviously a very difficult place to live because the game ends up telling you this sort of confrontation with a magical aspect of your fears is just a part of the mountain so I would not want to live there the old lady alludes to to the fact that this is going to happen to her yes and that this mountain actually manifests your innermost conflicts and forces you to face them yeah which is it's really it's clever because it's implied that she's climbing the mountain to get further away from her struggle. And the old lady is like, Oh honey, no, the mountain <laughs> is your struggle. Yes. And you're only going to confront it more directly. If you try to, con- and, to climb. Yes. It reminds me of a really good quote that I, I, I love. Um, it's, it's like, you know, if you travel to get away from your problems, you'll just wake up in a place for you're unfamiliar with, with yourself and your problems. And this is kind of like, well, you know, you're on the mountain, you're by yourself and now you have to dwell on them. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what happens. So she, she runs to Mr. Oshiro. And I think this is, it's, it's very brief. And I don't think it contributes as directly overall to the plot. But I think it's really interesting because he is a hoarder. This whole hotel is a mess. And Madeline says, oh, I can clean this up for you. So I think what's really important about this section is she is trying to run away from her own problems. And one of the ways she tries to do that is by taking on someone else's. Yeah. And the game addresses it really directly where people, Theo says, we got to get out. He's crazy. We, it's not our job to help him fix all of this. And Madeline's inner self also says something to that extent. Yeah. And also that they're, they're incapable of fixing it. Yes. Yes. So her inner self ends up coming out and being like super rude to Mr. Oshiro, but maybe saying things that Madeline really feels too. And then he turns into a monster and like chases them out. Because in case you didn't know, Mr. Oshiro has been floating this whole time. And also in the uh, pictures, uh, the end of 
every level you get a little picture of what just happened kind of like in depth because this is more like it's 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 definitely done to emulate it's in like that a, style. It's in like a pixelated style, but at the end of each level you get like an actual like full-fledged drawing. Hand-drawn adorable yeah. picture. And at the end of this drawing you see Oshiro or at the end of this level you see Oshiro like looking at, out at Madeline and he's transparent and you can see through him. So he's clearly a ghost. ghost. Yeah. And I like that they kind of debrief Madeline about this after. And she says like, I don't think he's a bad person. I just couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do about that. Right. Right. It it shows like she understands. And I think this is important. Like it's not supposed to be a learning moment for her in the sense that she's like, other people have my problems too. It's more that she kind of is already at at a point where she can look at someone else going through the same struggle as her. And she immediately, she puts it together that like what she's supposed to learn there isn't, I can sympathize with this character. What she's supposed to learn from that is I can't necessarily take on his problems when I haven't fixed my own. Right. And I think that's like a cool, maybe more nuanced thing that you might see in her than you would in other media that might be aimed at like younger players, right? Yes. Which I think Celeste pretty friendly to younger players for the most part. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. So one of my favorite parts is the next sequence where you're on a gondola getting from the hotel to the oh, next good, world. Good. I, I, this was one of my favorite parts and I yes. really wanted to you to talk about it. So. Yes. I really identify with it personally. And there's, she's kind of worried about this gondola situation. She's on there with Theo, who is cool as a cucumber, as usual, being adorable. And the gondola stops. And it's implied that it is the part of her, Badalyn, that has stopped it somehow. But Which it's, is crazy. She couldn't have actually done that. Right. Again, it's, I'm not even sure what the game wants you to take away from it. Because the other way to interpret it is that the gondola stops because of some faulty equipment and her anxiety kicks in, which manifests. And makes her think that she was the one who, she's the reason why it broke down and which stopped. I also think is a symptom of anxiety is that sort of personal accountability where you're like, well, I just should have been able to stop the wind from changing that kind of, you're always worried about that control and that that level of how could i have changed this situation and theo is just like oh whatever it's a gondola (laughs) in this moment right here uh, i just really want to take a moment and just really break down because theo is like hey just do what my grandfather said to like deal with situations like this imagine a feather and try and have your breath like keep that feather afloat and the game then take goes into a completely new mechanic of gameplay of you trying to keep this feather afloat within a certain box and it's hard it's difficult yeah. and so you can kind of like feel the anxiety that uh, Try, madeline's feeling to control and, something when you feel like you have no control yeah. yeah and like the screen on the edges of the screen you have like tendrils of darkness like reaching in and like making it seemed extremely tense and that this is life or death. And Theo is just there being like, breathe, imagine the, f- the feather. It and also it- kind of mutes his voice. There's not full fledged voice acting, but they have like the little like kind of noises to simulate dialogue. Just like that. And it becomes more muted and distant during this. Like, It's through water, which Madeline actually says at one point in a future conversation with him that when she's depressed, it feels like being at the bottom of an ocean. Like there's just all this water around her. And before that conversation happens, you have this moment and it really sounds like his voice is coming through water. 
So you focus on this golden feather, and it definitely simulates trying to control something uncontrollable, but it also is trying to force you to do like meditative breathing where it's that like in and out because he tells her to think about using your breath in to lift the feather and out to lower it but you have to do it consistently enough and i i feel like it's almost like madeline is playing a video game in a video game here where (laughs) i mean as we'll talk about in a second i feel like a lot of this is about the idea of using this simulated hardship to explore some kind of stress that you're trying to work through. Yeah. And, and you're using a, a thing that you can control and then that you can conquer in order to uh, give some kind of catharsis, right? Where, where you're not finding it normally. Yeah. And so that's kind of a microcosm of that. She right? was definitely sitting alone in her room and was like, what's a physical version of my problems that I could just conquer? A mountain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, and then, and whoa. then in the virtual version of the mountain, she's like, I need something I can control again. And that becomes the leaf. Yes. Which that the golden feather does come back later as an actual mechanic, which I think is super cool too. And a callback right. to Mario 3. Of course, as everyone <laughs> knows. There actually is like a, a, I wouldn't call it an Easter egg because you actually need it to get to the oh, secret okay. ending. Yeah, that bothered me. But there is a Mario 3 block. And if you know anything about Mario 3, I think in the first world, there is a white block. And if you crouch on it for X amount of seconds, you fall behind the stage of Mario 3 and get a whistle. whistle yeah. And the whistle lets you warp. So speedrunners will use it to get to the end. However, if you look at this Mario block in this game and crouch and do the exact same thing, you fall behind the stage a little and can get a secret heart that um, lets you get to hidden levels. Which I I felt very rewarded by, but the whole time I was like, how the hell would anyone anyone else? I would never have gotten that. So after the gondola and Theo introduces this kind of meditation to Madeline to help her with her anxiety, you reach a temple. A super magical, it's just legit temple situation. And at this point, Theo also experiences the magic. So it's very explicit now. I think up until this point, it's unclear if the part of Madeline, the Badeline, is real or just imagined. Even though we've had like, oh, Mr. Oshiro, is he really a ghost? What's going on there? Mm-hmm. But now it's just like, no, she's real. Magic is real. Because Theo also experiences it. And he gets trapped in a glass ball that Madeline helps carry him and, through and you with. Know, I really like that because I feel like Celeste is also like, I, I hate to keep, come back to the refrain of Celeste valid, like validating the act of playing a video game. But mm-hmm. I feel like in that moment, Celeste is saying, no, you're not here for me to tell you it's not real. You fucking know that. Right. So it's real. Like right. while you're playing this game, all of this shit is real. I also think it's interesting that, that confrontation of something is so different for these two characters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe Mr. Oshiro isn't really a ghost. Maybe that's the manifestation of his conflict as he turns into a ghost because Theo has this thing where it's revealed that he has some conflict. He loves his sister, but feels like he's in her shadow. She is becoming a lawyer. She's going to be, you know, this very impressive, successful woman that he's very proud of, but also feels like he as maybe a more artistic, less traditional. More bohemian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He can't live up to. So he's trying to get into photography and he, they don't call it Instagram, but he's obviously taking pictures for his Instagram followers. And I think that the way I interpreted the glass that he's trapped in is 
he wants, because there's also a sequence where you see all these eyes looking at him, is maybe how he's dealing with the pressure of being compared to his sister and all the eyes on him, and also how he's put that energy and feelings, arguably, into photography and being a subject on Instagram. And I also, I think those are all really good points, but I think also his dialogue throughout the the game uh, keeps on mentioning that he can't hold down a job not because he doesn't want not because he's bad at it but because he just doesn't like it and it feels like he's trying to be put into a box almost Mm. that society wants him to be in and i mean i think that that's also and he is being like captured and constricted right by the monster and so only when you come out and like carry him out like madeline the hero the saving theo the damsel in distress is is he able to like break free of his own inner like self um only then is he able to break free of his own like self-imprisonment and go out into the world and figure out who he actually is and that he doesn't have to fit into society's uh Mm -hmm. frameworks and i feel like the game is also there kind of uh, acknowledging that this one virtual version of a journey does help people work through multiple variations on well i don't know if i would say the same problem but each of them uses the same journey to solve a different problem. Yes. Right? Everyone has inner turmoil of some sort, no matter what you call it, you know? And I think that that's very relatable for anyone and it can all manifest differently, but no one's, it's hard to say this one person's personal struggle is more difficult than someone else's. It's just so different. It's like apples to oranges. How do you compare being trapped in a glass ball to having a manifestation of all your negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. So, you, yeah. yeah. So they do work together and she confesses to him, Oh, I have this manifestation of all my negative thoughts and they have a really wonderful conversation, which extensions of it are optional. Like you can just walk away, I think, or choose good night sooner. But if you really delve into all of them, you bond more and she opens up. And this is where he asks her, he says, what does this depression or anxiety feel like for you? If you don't mind me asking, if you're not comfortable sharing, you don't, you don't have to, which I think is a really small thing to do, but very important Mm -hmm. because it shows a really tasteful way to talk about this where Theo cares and wants to know, but isn't like, tell me about your depression. How can I help fix it? Like anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's I'm interested in understanding how would you express it? And then she has that, you know, description of being stuck at the bottom of the ocean and it's you feel so distant and yet like everyone has pressure on you and that kind of feeling but the interesting thing I think is that she seems to enjoy like the way she's written she seems to enjoy opening up to Theo you definitely feel this development and if you exhaust all of the dialogue options there she prompts him to take a selfie which up until this point he's always prompting her and then she's like I don't like this picture I don't like this I don't don't feel good about myself Yeah. yeah And at this point, she says, you know what? I think we should remember this moment. Let's take a picture. And I think it's she is starting to feel maybe better about herself. Nice little side note to that. One of the um, times that he kind of makes her feel a little bit better is when he tells her that she reminds him of his little sister. Older older sister. sister. Or his his older sister, sorry. Which I thought is kind of cool. Comes back a little bit, I think, maybe later. Because when we find out she has self-image problems. Yes. I also think that was interesting because... Me as like a, a lady playing the game, I was like, this Theo guy is pretty cute and he's really funny. Like, I hope they end up together. 
And he says that to her. And if a guy I thought was pretty cute was like, no, it's just you remind me of my older sister. I would be crushed. But she does not react that way at all. No, she likes it. Which I think kind of solidifies that they are portraying a platonic male-female relationship here, which I really like, too. Because there's not a ton of that out there. There's a healthy platonic male-female relationship. Yes. I think it's also a hint toward... Why is it that when she looks in the mirror, yes, she doesn't which like we'll, what she sees? Yes, which we'll right? tag at the end. So they break free of this. They have this conversation. This conversation inspires Madeline. She interprets it as, I need to confront Madeline. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not only confront her, but I need to throw her away and not and just like get rid of that part and of I me. I love that. It's, like, it's kind of like uh, those... Peer, I don't know how much you guys have dealt with depression, but sometimes you will have a bout of mania. Right. Like that's part of it is that it's not all valleys. Sometimes it's these peaks that are not necessarily any more helpful. (laughs) Yes, I can do everything. And that (laughs) includes getting rid of anything negative I've ever felt Mm -hmm. or done. Yeah. And she does this. It's an overcorrection where she says, "Okay, this part of me that's anxious, it needs to go. It's clearly making me miserable. It's clearly bad, which arguably is an extension of that negative part of her. She's gone so far into trying to identify what's wrong with herself that she's like, oh, it's all of my bad thoughts. And Madeline does not respond positively to this. She says, you want to throw me away? Well, you can't do that. And literally, they're almost to the top of the mountain and she drags her down deeper than she's ever been before. Like, below the mountain. There is yeah. a literal dark Fantastic pit. use of game metaphor. To yes. the heart <laughs> of the mountain. Yes. And down there, you climb and you run into the old lady again, just chilling. And basically, the old lady kind of flips between saying, oh, no shame in walking away. Like, I kind of thought you could make it, but obviously you couldn't. And I was also surprised you made it as far as you did fighting yourself like that the whole way. Yes. And I think there's this combination of the old lady being like, oh, so you're done now, but also encouraging her and saying, wow, you did get pretty far. I thought you could do it. And Madeline decides to follow the old lady's advice because the old lady basically implies, you know, getting rid of this other part of you isn't the right thing to do. You'll need her strength to get up this mountain. Yeah. And I kind of like that with when that moment where she she kind of reconciles with her other self at the bottom of this mountain it's almost like like the game isn't actually trying to say this is how she solved her depression this is the game saying this is when she accepts that depression is going to be a part of her life yes something that she will always have to deal with maybe i don't know if forever but Something that she cannot simply, with one dramatic moment, wash away. Yes. I definitely think it's her finding a coping mechanism. Right. And and uh, at the heart of the mountain, she fights her way to get close enough to that part of her. And after a really fun series of platforming, fighting, like, and getting to battling, as we've been calling Which her. Which I, I she... want to take a moment here and say that they use the platforming that happens with battling to express things about her. Like the first time you run into her, you try to escape her and she f- follows you, but literally follows your exact path. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's implying oh, the beginning of the, game. At the very yeah, beginning. Yeah. It's implying how linked she is to you. And then later like at this point, you are chasing her and she is trying to get away from you, yeah. which I think is an interesting flip. And the closer you get to her, she gets angrier and angrier. And just to go back even further, you meet that part of you, Badalyn, when you look in a mirror in the magic mansion. 
So you're kind of seeing yourself, your reflection of yourself, and that's when she is manifested the into the yeah. game. So uh, at this point... But anyways, uh, when you finally fight your way to the heart of the mountain, get to that part of you, that battle in, she's like, all right, fine, get rid of me. I'm, I'm sad. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to be gone forever. Um, but if that's really what you want, I'm like, I'll go away and disappear. And Madeline's like, no, 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 I can't get rid of you. I need your help. I need you to work with me. We need to work together. And she's like, all right, well, you really like you're going to work together and do it. And they recombine into one person. And, and you and, get a power up. Yeah, you, it you, says level up. Pretty much you go Super Saiyan. Your hair yes. goes pink instead of red. And now you have the ability to jump. So there are two things in the game. Twice. That will it kind of as a mechanic extend your jump that are linked to the narrative. One is the golden feather. After Theo introduces this idea of the golden feather helping you calm down and work through like an anxiety moment, you can find it at certain points in platforming and it extends your jump. It gives you like a boost, like you're Iron Man straight up in the air. And then this moment where your hair changes color, which I think is interesting as well, is another moment where you're like, oh, no, I I have another jump. You are literally empowered by combining with her. And this power does directly enable you to climb the mountain rapidly and i do want to say the feather um as Lindsay was saying does become a mechanic that you use but you really are introduced to it as a mechanic of gameplay in the level where you're fighting to get to that part of you so you're using what theo taught you to help get closer to yourself so what's happening is madeline's using like the tools that theo has helped her learn and these coping mechanisms to eventually approach and face that part of her to uh, eventually like calm her down and be able to work with herself. I think an argument could be made too that if it if the golden feather is representation for meditation, it maybe links to an idea of introspection. Mm-hmm. And that every time she uses it, she's reflecting on herself and getting closer to that. So from here, I mean, it wraps up pretty quickly. You make it to the top of the mountain there's a cute moment where Theo's like, oh, I made it down and you're okay. How can I help? And she's like, hold my bag. And then he does. And she goes to the top of the mountain, which is like, I don't know. I'm a sucker for any time a woman's like, hold my bag and just Specifically jumps off. Hold my That's bag. it. That's the trope I love. It's, it's, a, it's a backpack here. <laughs> it's like a big hiking backpack that she's been carrying this whole time. Yeah. So she's literally in that moment taking off a load yeah. and a friend is helping her hold it. And that enables her to get up to the top of the mountain. So she does it. She gets to the top of the mountain and she takes a moment there with her herself. And Badalyn's like, I'm scared because when we go down this mountain and go home, I won't have a body anymore. And Madeline says, but I'll be better at listening to you, which I think kind of I interpreted as this voice inside of her has something meaningful to say, but the way she interacts with it builds it up to the point of like an anxiety attack. And And the better she gets at understanding these feelings she has, maybe the better she'll prepared she'll feel to handle them. And not pretending that like they don't exist. And yeah, pretending that they don't exist was 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 what caused Badalyn, that bad part of her, to become like this awful manifestation that haunted Madeline. The thing that this game does better than the other platformers, which obviously has the advantage of a few decades, is how explicit the mechanics are in reflecting a a personal journey for this character. Yeah. We talked about, you know, the, the mechanics making you feel like you're climbing, but also 
the mechanics get harder at certain points where you're really conflicting with your inner self and easier where you're finding resolutions. You are rewarded mechanically for finding resolutions. And you know, like platformers are this weird animal where I personally think Super Mario Brothers 1, everything about it is designed around this, this basic joy of moving from left to right. And like it is trying to make that front and center, right? But even as early as something like Donkey Kong Country, I feel like the the side-scrolling is incidental to what the story is about, right? And I, and I don't think that the... I don't think that this is as much a thing in other genres as it is something as popular. I think it's because platformers got so popular that it, it was old hat to say, whoa, isn't jumping cool? Like, wouldn't it be interesting if a character could jump? Like, that's... Not really the direction that platformers went in. Um, unlike, say, RPGs, which I would say many RPGs are constantly asking, like, why do RPG elements exist? Yeah. What, is, what do they mean? I really like Celeste, even as someone who's so skeptical of a lot of retro-styled indie games, which many of them are really good. Right. Many of them, I think, kind of take for granted what the genre they're emulating is about. Celeste does not do that. No, Celeste it, like, is all about why do you jump? Why do you climb a mountain? Why do you want to put yourself through this hardship that you keep dying in and failing yes. at over and over? And um, I know that that's the end of like the main story. Well, the other thing I really like about the main story is that that's not the end. It's that in the rain, the main story, not even DLC yet or bonus tracks, you come back down that mountain. It doesn't just say, well, you're at the top of the mountain and everything's done. There is a scene where you come back down and and there's a celebration with the old lady and Theo and Mr. Oshiro and you make a pie and how good it is depends on how many strawberries you collected throughout the game. Strawberries are just like extra difficult challenges to the player. But I think that I really like that it's a story about someone confronting how to handle their, their thoughts of depression and anxiety and it doesn't end with her saying, well, I conquered it. I climbed yeah. the mountain. It ends There's with a her. There's like normalcy after that. Yeah. Too. It says, well, now you go back to a world where you interact with people. And mm. that's and the end is taking yeah. what you've gained from this mountain and going back. That's a good point. And but integrating like it. What the hidden levels do and the DLC do, I think are fantastic, though, because they add on to the story in ways that, you know, really flesh it out and make it. Madeline, they, they like, go a, into a, like, what is Madeline's spe- more specific struggle beyond like where maybe the average user may not intersect with her? If like you take it narratively, the additional challenges and the idea of her coming back also show that there's more to do. There's yeah. not just like, yeah. all right, I did it. I confronted myself. It's that it's an ongoing journey. And, and she uses it. Like, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned like coping mechanisms and things like that before, because d- she's like kind of mourning a different thing, right? In the DLC. Like, yeah. It's a loss in, of a in, family member. No, no, no. In the DLC, um, the old woman dies. She calls oh, her granny, but oh, it's, it's right, not right. really her granny. And she's distraught about it, and she's coming back to the mountain because she missed the funeral, and she wanted to say her goodbye to her. And, and I think it's clear that she missed the funeral because she was so anxious it's, or depressed. It's, she clearly yeah. had some sort of... It's not calling just, it an episode I don't like, but, you know, it's not just, a spike of, mm-hmm. of struggles to cope with 
the emotions and she was so over i think she was so overwhelmed she could not attend the funeral so between the regular game and the dlc the old woman she grew really close to they were writing they were on the phone together and the old woman passed away and she did not feel confident enough to go to that funeral and that guilt has pushed her back to the the mountain Right. And and then the mountain is helping her overcome a different, separate problem. Yes, and it's so the mountain this time is grief, grief, um, when and guilt and guilt because she didn't go to the funeral, and it's really well done. Um, she sees she's a bird, the bird it, that actually gave you the tip on how to do the dash mechanic at the very beginning oh. of the game, and she's like, "That's Granny's soul. I'm going to go after her," which. Not a crazy thing to believe on, on a magic mountain. mountain. Right. Not on this mountain. And so, like, for most of the time, your old battling part of yourself uh, doesn't show up as much anymore because you've generally reconciled your differences. But on this attempt up the mountain, you do run into her a lot more. And it's kind of showing, like, the dissociation between, like, that paranoid and, like, opinionated side of her that's like, whoa, you know, like, you don't, you still, you know, it's it's fine. Like, people will pass away, and you're going to struggle, and it will be difficult, but we can get through this together. And that Madeline is like, well, like, hold on, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go off on my own. And she's not listening to that other part of her anymore. The interesting conflict, too, is that Madeline's not convinced that this bird is the old lady. She's like, you're mm-hmm. crazy to think that. And at the end, it's not the old lady. Madeline does get to meet, quote unquote, the old lady and apologize. Mm-hmm. But it's very clear that that's a dream. So Madeline kind of says, this isn't really you. The utility of why that voice was always important to begin with. Yes, right? yes. And th- in this case, she's kind of being escapist and saying, no, I am going to go chase that bird because that bird is totally granny and then I can reconcile things. And her journey is learning to find a way to reconcile with herself and her interpretation of granny rather than literally finding her soul, mm-hmm. which I think is super cool. And at the end, she wakes up She's crying, like, you know, had emotional, like, dream and an emotional reconciliation with herself. And she goes over and calls Theo. And Theo's like, hey, you fell off the planet when Granny died. I was, you know, what's up? Like, where are you? Like, are you okay? And she's like, yeah, I'm I'm fine. Like, sorry. I just was struggling. And he's like, yeah, no worries. I get that, you see that we, you'll struggle. We all were taking it hard. Just next time, you know, just... Let me know you're you're alive. Yeah, which again mm-hmm. mirrors that idea of going to the mountain to face a personal journey and like struggle and bringing it back to the real world. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I I love it. I think it's great. Yeah, I think sure it really resonates. Hearing you guys recount that I never played the I, DLC. It's good. I mean, I like the main game. I like the main game has so many moments where I'm just like, ugh. Yeah. But the DLC is good too, and the DLC does introduce an aspect that I think a lot of the community got really excited about and talked about. Or perhaps confirm. Well, yes, yes. Which is the ending is drawn, like two drawn frames that they use for the backgrounds of the dialogue. And one is Madeline laying on her bed at home and there's a bottle of pills on the nightstand by her, which, I mean, at first glance I was like, yeah, she's depressed and has anxiety. The, possibly some sort of antidepressant or anti-anxiety meds because of course that's what i was like oh this is part of the game so we knew she was depressed yes right but then the next screen a lot of people pointed out you see her sitting at her computer and 
underneath her computer screen are like two like little mini flags crossed like an X. And one is like the rainbow flag for LGP, LGTBQ. LGBT. You, you just got you, the order wrong. Oh, order no. <laughs> and then the other flag is for the trans community. So which is not something that happens accidentally. Which I love because I think it's amazing how blindsided I was by that. Yeah. Um, and then I jumped on like my favorite leftist discord and everyone's like, yeah, we knew that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, like, welcome to, it's like, it's like if a white person reads X-Men and then they go to their, their brown friend and they're like, did you ever realize X-Men <laughs> are minorities? And they're like, yeah, yes. buddy. <laughs> and that was my moment. Yes. Yeah. No, me too. Because I was definitely seeing in the main game struggles that I identified with, which I'm sure everyone does. And then when it's made this explicit, and the third thing that's in this one is a picture. There's a picture of her as a child with her mother. And she has, I mean, it's hard to, Tell, it's hard to tell gender, it's style, yeah. but there is it's short hair, mm-hmm. which like the the pictures intentionally depicting her as a little bit more like butch than like yes, in the main game. Yes, so the interpretation was that she is trans and has transitioned to being a woman, mm-hmm. and I totally. I mean, the flag is a big giveaway. You could be a developer who puts that in there just to say, you know, I support it. I'm gonna put it. Put it in there. But when you combine it with like all these hints from the main game. Yes. I definitely think things in the main game feel like that. But also the picture. Why would you draw your protagonist? Intentionally differently. Yes. If it's going to be something that your art style doesn't always clearly convey that, why wouldn't you give her a ponytail? Like, I think that's a very intentional decision too. And I think it sounds very obvious when we say this, but the reason it's a discussion is because there's been no confirmation outside of the game, like from the developers and creators that she is trans. Mm -hmm. And I know from what I read, again, not part of that community. So speaking as like third party, they want that confirmation. They were excited Mm -hmm. to have a, because they they are at the moment they saw like the, the, the bad person in the mirror, they're like, Oh yeah. Like, well, at least again, me being an outsider, what other people tell me is this imagery of, uh, there being some kind of antagonist or like some kind of part of yourself that you're you're in conflict with in the mirror is this common metaphor used in uh, apparently used in trans media, which and makes sense. I just love that the by putting this in the DLC or like putting it somewhere off the main path, the game gets to do this crazy thing where we all are projecting whatever struggle we want to onto Madeline. And then when we see what Madeline's own struggle is now, all of a sudden we get to say that, well, I shouldn't say we get to say, but we get to see the commonalities in what Madeline is struggling with and what we are struggling with. And we can connect those two emotions. And yes, there's definitely more empathizing. Yeah. Which for a video game that on its surface looks as simple as Celeste is, is incredible. Yeah. Very this incredible. This game does so much. It's very ambitious with, I guess, how much it's willing to express. Yes. Like, you play that game and you feel like you went to therapy a little bit. Mm-hmm. You're like, wow. I mean, you kind of are, right? Like, it, I, I, I want to come back to the idea that, like, this game is mechanically designed to feel therapeutic. Yes. And, like, I know that I would play this game 
even if I wasn't looking for a story. Yes. Like if I just want to feel better. Yeah. By conquering like a single screen of a game. Yeah. The other do that. briefly, the other interesting thing was the, the way her hair changes color. Mm-hmm. And that progression is a progression of outward appearance changing to fit more with, I think, how oh, she's feeling yeah. and how she is playing around with how she looks on the outside to match with how she's coping with her emotions on the inside, yeah. too, which I thought was an interesting way and to like read finding that. like this, like having this one identity, leaving it behind, having a second one, and then finding a third identity that somehow like combines both these of aspects them. of herself. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I think, I mean, every layer of this game works so well for me in its mechanics and its storytelling and its messaging. I mean, I know we spent... <laughs> Probably the longest time talking yes. about Celeste, but well, rightfully so compared with now, the other two. Yes. I do want to like, I kind of want to bring it home and and we'll talk it. about Bef- some of the trends. Oh, sorry, we... yes, oh, yeah. Sterling. Well, before we do, I just had a quite a question that's mm-hmm. been on my mind the whole time. Um, so in the DLC, you learned that Theo's grandfather, who also went to the mountain, had some sort of revelatory experience. You learned that his grandpa knew Granny, who was almost your mentor figure throughout this game. So my question is, what is Granny actually doing there? Why is she still on the mountain? So that is asked at one point, because I, I think Madeline says something to the extent of, it must be fucking exhausting living here. Mm-hmm. And Granny expresses that she likes it because it keeps her honest with herself. And she also has a moment where Madeline's like, oh, you must be a lonely old hermit. And the old lady's like, girl, I have friends. Like I don't, just cause I live here doesn't mean I don't have friends. Mm-hmm. So I think granny's this representation of the importance of continuing to have some sort of introspection where she says, I'm going to do the hard work every day and I'm going to really like living with myself, yeah. but she chooses to live on the edge of darkness, essentially like yes. always keeping one foot in what she's afraid of about herself. Yes. So I'm really looking forward to a Celeste two about granny. Yeah, um, the prequel. Th- that would well, be pretty cool. I, I don't mean to get a little bit dark, but like, I don't know how much. How often do you guys talk to your grandparents, or perhaps did talk to your grandparents? Well, mine are all dead, and they have been for oh, okay. <laughs> several years. Well, like uh, something I noticed is like when I was talking to my grandpa before he passed away. Uh, over the years, he just kept talking about his own death more and more and more, and obviously, death being a you know central element of the human condition. I don't want to fucking think about that. Like going oh, so through my life. So you think that that may be what Granny was facing in I th- there? I think Granny is showing that she's comfortable with things that make someone Madeline's age uncomfortable. Ooh. And in the same way that my grandpa was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna die one day." Uh, so are you, but you probably aren't thinking about that. But I sure yes. am every <laughs> single day, and I'm cool with it. I'm like. Boy, Thank Grandpa, you sure live in darkness. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Grandpa. Yeah. Uh, can you pass the peas, please? <laughs> yeah. And so just... that that old lady kind of reminds me of that. Like she she is willing to look at oblivion, whatever that might mean to her. For Madeline, looking at oblivion means looking at like the side of herself she doesn't like. Right. For the granny, maybe it means looking at like the other world. Or Which something. I think could be really explicit too, given that the DLC is about her dying. Yeah. So maybe it shows that the writers did have that in mind as a possibility in something she was facing. And so anyways, back to your point of bringing it all yeah, home. Yeah, bring it We can really, like, I, yeah. I, like, just from this discussion, I've seen, like, the transformation that platformers have gone through. Yeah, and, and 
I do feel like we chose an interesting mid middle point in this, which is not really a middle point between Super Mario Brothers and Celeste. But I love that. It's like how different it could be. Yes. And we, we talked about the fact that there was plenty of opportunity to make a really big statement in Donkey Kong Country. Yes. And they don't. And, and, you know, it's important in and of itself to show that, like, we started with platformers being a thing about platforming. And Celeste is a very recent example of a platformer that is about <laughs> about platforming. Um, and we have a midpoint where platforming was just a thing you took for granted. It was just another way to have, like, another avenue, another vehicle for this mascot. But I kind of wanted to talk real quick about the isolation of platforming because I wonder if maybe the reason why we can kind of see similar narratives in platforming being about a journey, platforming being about people like one person against an entire world of hostile forces, which all three of these games are about that. It is very often man versus nature. Exactly. And so I'm wondering... Except for if, Celeste, where it's also man versus self. And, and yeah. And, and so I'm wondering if there is something about a platformer that makes us look at Donkey Kong and think, it's Donkey Kong versus the entirety of the animal planet, right? Is that just because that is a natural fit for platforming? Is that something where um gosh i'm so not into platforming that i'm racking my head for other platforms well like if you look at i honestly i think most platformers there there isn't a huge cast of supporting characters yeah and it's a feature when they are there like yoshi is a big deal less of a like yoshi is more of a big deal in super mario world than like another party member and even in in yoshi's island in an rpg you're still like oh this is yoshi versus the world yeah. Like it, it is always because the inherent nature of platforming is that that has to be your enemy. Yes. Although, so Prince of Persia, not like the arcade one, but Sands of Time, uh-huh. the one I fucking love, that's a platformer. Yeah. And it uses it very differently. And I don't think that the platforming in that game has anything to do with the story mm-hmm. other than. Well, I stole sand that can turn back time briefly so you can retry this section. And yeah, I don't yeah. think that That's really ties into the narrative as as fluidly as definitely Mario and Celeste. Oh, you know what? Even we though sh- I love that That game. reminds me of a game that maybe we should have covered is Mirror's Edge, which is a game yeah. about a character whose ability to influence the plot and influence the world is the fact that she can travel in ways that other people aren't. I think to. it's definitely clear that we could totally do another lightning round on a few platformers. Prince of Persia deserves its own whole episode. Mm-hmm. And we yeah, can t- I really touch love... on the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm, I'm, like, I'm glad that we not every game we talked about was a platformer talking about the genre. Yes, right. yes. I think Donkey Kong Country was a very interesting shift away. It was like, yeah, we're a platformer. And I don't know, maybe there's communism. But and we have all Donkey the Kong sucks, but also things. he's your hero. Yeah. So for sure. Any final thoughts on our platformers or on season one in general? I feel like we got to the bottom of some stuff. Yeah. Plenty of more to get to the bottom of, though. I think that we there was a disturbing lack of Street Fighter. <laughs> We'll correct that with season two. Also, older games, uh, I am going to play Chrono Trigger. Yeah, you are. And we'll dive I, into that. I'm glad we're doing these. I kind of want to do, for season two, I would like to do more than one lightning round because I would love to talk about like shoot 'em ups 
and like, oh, for beat sure. ups and like games that were like the plot is like a minute long, but there's so much to unpack. Yeah. Like mechanically. You, yeah. Like I told you the plot to Final Fight, right? Do you know the plot to Final Fight? You you definitely told me, but it was the, I about think, the mayor rescuing his daughter. While I was playing Slay the Spire. Oh, right, right. So, so yeah, probably not much. I only half exist when I'm playing Slay the, the Spire. Episode. We should do an episode on Slay so the Spire. So all I'm saying is like I love talking about games where the mechanics more so than the, the exact beat by beat story progression can express a lot. And yes. I think that this format maybe can help us, you know, get through some of those. For sure. Yeah. I, I know that there are other genres that I'd love to go into as well. We could go and hit Rogue and Sterling just likes. wants to talk about The Binding of Isaac. And yeah, well, I really like The Binding of Isaac. Binding of Isaac two, is one of my of favorite games of the past decade. I really like Binding I of feel Isaac. Like, uh, our listeners don't realize how much of a fucking curmudgeon I am. <laughs> and so like me liking Celeste and Binding of Isaac means something. It's a big deal. Or at least I like to believe that it does. <laughs> well, sure, Chris. Sure. <laughs> I think that I could probably go on and on about Donkey Kong Country, but I, I won't. I will tackle that in Donkey Kong Country 2 if we ever get around to that one. But I don't know if Donkey Kong Country 2 has enough more. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Especially he just wants to talk about the music. He wants to take another moment and remind Look, everyone that it's his favorite video game. David, David Wise <laughs> did an amazing job. If you are out there, we would love for you to compose a theme for our podcast, and we will pay you handsomely in with, our with our meager salaries. Thanks. Verbal gra- gratitude. <laughs> uh, this is a contract offer. You know what? Put, put anything out there in the universe. What's the worst that could happen? All right. Well... Anything you guys want to plug? Our podcast. Yeah. Season two of the podcast. <laughs> Watch yeah. or listen to season two of Player versus Plot coming soon. Yeah, uh, I know yeah. I mentioned it at the top, but if you're not subscribed for some reason, go ahead and yes. take a moment and do that because we'll just pop up in your feed. You don't even have to worry about it. If you're the kind of person that is a, into leaving reviews, leaving reviews yeah. will totally help us. Follow us on Twitter. Yes, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Although I don't know how much we're doing on Facebook because we're millennials. So Twitter and Instagram at player versus plot. Wait a minute. I'm a little insulted that (laughs) as slightly being slightly older than you guys by like 10 to 12 months. Yes, it's a big that I'm the one who had to do the Facebook. I'm not saying we're ageist here, but <laughs> we're a little ageist here. Also, uh, please send us your questions yeah. on player at playerversplot at gmail.com. That's yeah. playervsplot at gmail.com. That and suggestions, because now's, now's your chance. We, yes. we have tell rec- us how wrong we are. Yes. Yeah, tell us what we need to play, what we need to add to our list. Oh, tell and- us your pet theories, and we will pr- maybe read them out loud. Oh my gosh, that would be so exciting. It could be about any game. If you have a wild, like theory that you want to get to the bottom of we may save it for the game or we may just be like people need to know about this theory yeah. right now maybe yeah. that'll just be a, a, a standalone segment. Yeah, or oh yeah. yes you know if uh you guys send enough questions we might even just do our own uh and question and answer answering weird video game theory questions before we go i would like to plug a couple things go for it chris i, um, I assume you asked us what we wanted to plug yeah, because I have something to we plug. want oh, you well, want that's, us to ask that's you how my questions work Lindsay. no it's I, like we're done here ask, chris you don't no, no. <laughs> My day was great. And then we just Check go on. Check out uh, P-A-T-H-I-K-A blog.com. Why? For what is it? RPG and game design discussion in blog format. 
uh, check out the Ultraviolet Grasslands, which is an RPG module if you like psychedelic Oregon Trail style adventure. And who doesn't? Uh, mixed with Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, also check out, oh, what was it? Magical <laughs> Industrial Revolution <laughs> by one of my favorite authors, Skirples, known only by the monogram or mononym Skirples, um, which I helped out a little bit with both of these books and I would like you to buy them. Nice. I'm, I mean, I'm reading The Blade itself. Which I did have, I had nothing to do with creating, but it's pretty good. Just plugging things I like now. Yeah. Sterling, you should plug something you like. Actually, you know what? Why don't we all tell the (laughs) listeners a game we demand that they play before season two? Before season? Well, no, because we would want them to play games that will be in season two. What about, what's a game you're playing right now? What's on your list that you're working through? I recently played, well, obviously I'm playing Disco Elysium. Mm-hmm. recently played the first uh, Saga game on Game Boy, also called Final Fantasy Legend. The game is fucking crazy and wild and weird, and I don't know how to describe it. You should go play it. Play it. Uh, find a cartridge at your local <laughs> city game exchange. Because <laughs> that's how Chris is playing it. Yeah. Um, Sterling, how about you? I have been working my way through Tales of Vesperia. Mm, uh, the yeah. Tales of series was always one of my favorite growing up. Uh, Tales of Symphonia is just one of my favorite games of all time. It doesn't make like the top five, but it's it's on my top list. Yeah. And uh, I'm enjoying Tales of Vesperia. And are you guys playing at co-op? No, no. Oh, that's how I got <laughs> that's how I got my wife to let me buy it. <laughs> we can play it together. No, he was playing it while on the Switch while I was playing Jedi Fallen Order on cool. the PlayStation. So I'm I'm trying to. Finished that one up, but then I made the mistake of picking up Slay the Spire again. So yeah. I'm just, I'm just playing Slay the Spire some more, and then Jedi Fallen Order, and then you know Chrono Trigger for no, season I think two. Pretty soon on the lineup for me is Return of the Obra Dinn, which everyone tells me that I should play. That's that Disco Elysium cover. is is a big one I want to get to. That's another good one. Yeah, I feel like that's just made for me. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to play Return of the Obra. Or- Oberdin, I guess. The Oberdin. I don't remember the first couple words of that game. I don't know. I don't know what any of the title means, to be honest. I think the Oberdin is the name of the ship. We'll I have to return. find out with all this time we'll have prepping for season two. All right. So again, season two, hopefully coming out soon. A couple months? Soon. Yeah, maybe early March is, you know, our target because we're still getting into this whole podcasting thing and figuring out how it works, too. So. Hopefully it doesn't take three years like season one did. <laughs> <laughs> now we're professionals. It's fine. We have a process. So in the meantime, be sure to stay in touch with us on our social media. And that's a wrap for season one. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you this summer. <laughs> no. March. This spring, I mean. This spring. <laughs> I don't know when March is. 